0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians. We'll be looking at chapter 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a paperback one underneath. One of the seats in front of you will help you if you have a Bible before you. So... Um, Open to 2 Corinthians 12, just a few things I want to mention before we get started. <clears throat> As Eric has prayed, um, Mary and I will be leaving on Saturday to fly to Kuala Lumpur for what's called the KL 2020 Conference. It's a conference for Chinese <coughs> Chinese pastors and church leaders. Expecting about 4,000 Chinese church leaders to be present there. And so we're going as members of the China Partnership to support and encourage our Chinese brothers and sisters. So it's a great privilege to be able to go to this conference. After that, we're going to go visit a couple of our missionaries there that the church supports. So we'll be gone from January 25th to February 5th. Um, And so Pastor Brian will be filling the pulpit here for the next three Sundays. And after that, we'll return to our Route 66 series. But, um, yeah, Mary and I will be gone for a little while. So we would really appreciate your prayers uh, as we get ready to fly out very early on Saturday morning. So that's one thing. Another thing that Eric prayed for was the annual meeting. So, again, a reminder, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, annual meeting. So if you're a member of the church, you're strongly encouraged and exhorted to attend. Um, We do not have, as I have mentioned to you previously, anybody up for election to the office of elder or deacon as we normally would. But still, it's important to be present so you can hear about what's been happening in the church, where we're headed in the future by God's grace. And we'll also present the 2020 budget. And I am very glad to report that there's good news about the budget and that giving ended very, very well at the end of 2019. So we're very grateful to God for that and grateful to you for your generosity but you'll hear more about that tomorrow night. So seven o'clock annual meeting. If you're not a member, if you're a visitor, if this is your first time here this morning, you're still welcome to attend our annual meeting tomorrow night. And then lastly, we have um, informed you, sadly, that the Maoris are going to be moving away in March. And so Eric is a ruling elder. Jessica has been our children's director. Um, So thankfully we have a couple more months with the Maoris. Um, but we have secured a replacement for Jessica as children's director, and that person is Ashley Brown, Andrew's wife. So, yeah, we can give her a hand. Yeah. Is Ashley here? Yeah. You want to stand up, Ashley? Just sorry. Sorry. OK, you can sit down. Um, <laughs> uh, just for those of you who don't know Ashley, Yeah, Ashley is married to Andrew. Andrew is our youth director here at New Life, and so we're very grateful for Uh, Ashley's willingness to serve. Uh, Very sorry to see Jessica go. We'll miss her, but very grateful for Ashley's willingness to serve. So pray for the both of them. Um, Ashley's official start date is yet to be set. She's going to be kind of working with Jessica over the next few weeks to get trained and prepared for that position. Okay, I think that's all I have to say. Why don't we get to uh, the Word of God here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, again, is our text. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 10. There are eight words, a little eight-word phrase that, uh, very famous, that I'm sure you're familiar with. These eight words are uh, powerful words, and they are words that summarize pretty much the entire thrust of the biblical story. These eight words are as follows, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong something that's very different than the view of the world that would tell us something like only the strong survive. Uh, But what the scripture tells us is that only the weak are strong. The whole thrust of the biblical message from start to finish can be summed up in these words, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's a paradox, right? It's kind of a confusing statement. When you hear that, you ought to think a little bit, wait a minute, how can that be true? A paradox is a statement that would seem to be contradictory on the face of it, but actually captures a very profound truth. And in the Bible, there are a number of paradoxes. You lose your life to find it. You enslave yourself to God in order to find freedom. You humble yourself in order to be exalted. They seem contradictory, but there is truth there. And these eight words are a similar kind of paradox. When I am weak, then I am strong. And that's what we're going to be considering, this paradox here this morning. If you're here today and you feel weak, you feel unimpressive... You feel insignificant, you feel unimportant, you feel like you lack skill, you lack talent, you feel overlooked, you're overwhelmed not with your strength but with your weakness. If that's you today, this passage is for you. I am here this morning to bring this passage to you to encourage your hearts because this is something you will not hear in the world and that is strength is found through weakness. So we're finding this in this passage in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, we are continuing through this sermon series called Root 66. Uh, what I'm doing is going through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We started in Genesis, working our way all the way through Revelation, and we have arrived here at 2 Corinthians, a book written by the Apostle Paul. Of course, last week we looked at First Corinthians, uh, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians about 56 A.D., about a year after he wrote 1 Corinthians. Um, significant events in this book, really what is kind of pervading the whole book is the conflict that exists between Paul and the church in Corinth, and we'll talk a little more about that in just a second. But that leads to certain themes coming out in this book of 2 Corinthians, humility, authority, and apostleship. A lot of passages in 2 Corinthians are not really that well known. Many of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians, maybe not so much with 2 Corinthians. But this passage I'm about to read is um, certainly the most well known and beloved passages in this book, and one of the most beloved passages in the Bible, and certainly one of my personal favorite passages. So let's read this passage. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Page 564 of the paperback Bibles from the English Standard Version, starting with verse 7. Whoops, I'm in 1 Corinthians. Hang on. 2 Corinthians 12. Easy mistake to make. All right. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand this paradox that is in your word, and Father, build up. The faith and the hope and the love, particularly of those of us today feeling overwhelmed with our weakness. Speak to us, Lord, we pray now through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. So I'm going to be referring a little bit to the first six verses to give a little context for this passage. I started reading in verse seven. But um, the first thing I want to show you is how. God has allowed weakness to play a major part in the life of the Apostle Paul. Weakness allowed. So, let me kind of set the stage here, give you some context. Um, As I mentioned, one of the events or themes of this book is the conflict that existed between the Apostle Paul and uh, particularly leaders in the church of Corinth. So, Um, there were these people in Corinth that Paul called super-apostles sarcastically. He used that word. It's interesting to note how sarcasm kind of comes up frequently in the Scriptures. And here is an example. Paul calls these leaders super-apostles. And these super-apostles were challenging Paul's claim to be an apostle himself. So an apostle is just somebody appointed by... Uh, Jesus to preserve and disseminate, teach the gospel. And Paul is making this claim that he's an apostle. And these super apostles in Corinth were saying, you can't possibly be an apostle, Paul. They said things like this. They said, Paul, you, you don't even speak that well. You come and talk to us and you're not very good. You, you have a very unimpressive physical presence, Paul. And they're thinking, you know, Paul, you don't have anything in the way of any kind of ecstatic spiritual experiences. So how can you possibly be an apostle? In other words, kind of what they were saying is, Paul, you don't seem to bear the marks of strength that we would expect to find in an apostle. You seem too weak. Well, Paul here hears this and and he doesn't want to boast. You know, he's a he's a humble guy and he doesn't want to boast, but Because of these accusations, the occasion kind of calls for it. And so he needs to boast. And so actually the chapter starts, if you look in verse 1 of chapter 12, with Paul saying, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. So what he's saying is, I don't really want to boast, but I kind of have to in this case, because I have to make a defense of my apostleship. So he moves on here in these next few verses, and he reports something astonishing that happened to him. 14 years ago, verse 2, it says, 14 years ago, what happened is, uh, the way Paul describes it is, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, now who is Paul talking about? Well, we are pretty sure he's talking about himself here. He's speaking in the third person. He's acting like this happened to somebody else, but it actually happened to him. What he's doing is trying to keep distance between himself and this experience that he had 14 years ago. Because he doesn't want to get puffed up and in pride about it. And he goes on to describe what this experience was. He says in verse 2 again that he got caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven. What is that? Well, in typical Jewish thinking, the first heaven would just be the sky above. The second heaven would be the stars, moon, planets. The third heaven would be the next stage above that, which would have been in the presence of God. God heaven as we think of in the Bible. What Paul is saying here is that he had a revelation in which he was ushered up into the presence of God and God said things to him, verse 4, things that cannot be told which man may not utter. Here is Paul in the presence of God by virtue of this amazing, ecstatic, spiritual experience. But Paul has, over the course of these 14 years, he, he has not said anything about it. He doesn't want to get puffed up. He doesn't want to be prideful about it. I mean, you think about what uh, a person might do today if he or she were ushered up into the third heaven and heard God speak. I mean, the book would be written within a few weeks and on the market it would be a New York Times bestseller. Oprah Winfrey would have the person on her show. This person would be famous And we've seen that happen before, people claiming these kind of ecstatic experiences for various reasons maybe, but in some cases it's because it's a good way to get notoriety, a good way to make money, but that's not Paul. Fourteen years he's been quiet about this. He doesn't want to make a big deal out of it, and the reason why is because this is a man who's been humbled. This is a man who is aware of his weaknesses, and his weakness or the awareness of his weakness has come through something that he calls a thorn. So we look at verse 7. So that's just my introduction, verses 1 through 6. Now we pick up from where I read earlier. To keep me, he says, from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, so that's referring to everything that came before in the first six verses, a thorn was given me. So, this is what God has allowed into Paul's life, a a thorn. So, let's think of this, Um, Paul's thorn in the flesh. Why was this thorn allowed? And it's very clear, Paul says in verse 7, to keep him from being too elated. To keep him from being too elated. He says it again in verse 7. Or to keep him from being conceited, some other translations say. He's been in this, had this amazing experience. He would be tempted to think, wow, I must be really special. I must be really great. I must be God's special person. He must love me more than everybody else. That's the way most of us think if we would have had experience like this. But God allows this, this thorn into his life to keep him from being too elated. In other words, to keep him aware of his weakness. To keep him weak. Um, what... Um, from where does this thorn come? Pretty clear. In verse 7, it's a messenger of Satan is sent to harass me, a messenger of Satan. Um, so, we've got to look at this closely here because it says that this messenger of Satan was sent to harass him, to keep him from being too elated. We know that that wouldn't be Satan's intent, right? I mean, Satan wouldn't want... To keep Paul from being conceited. Satan would want the opposite. Satan would want him to be conceited and prideful. That would be his intent. But what Paul says here is a messenger of Satan was sent to harass me to keep me from being too elated. So, if that wasn't Satan's intent, whose intent was it? And I think what we can read into this is that it's God's intent. God allowed Satan to come to Paul and bring this thorn so that He would not be too elated. So we see this principle that we see throughout Scripture. That is that Satan only does what God allows him to do. Satan is God's Satan. The devil is God's devil. The devil does what God sends him to do. Remember in Job, the first chapter, it's Satan coming to ask permission from God to attack Job. And I think that's what's going on here. So God, through the instrument of Satan, has allowed this thorn to come into Paul's life. The last question is this. What is this thorn? What is it? And there's much speculation about this, a lot written about this, a lot of different opinions about this. What does Paul mean about this thorn in the flesh? Some people think it might have been the persecution or the criticism that he received here in Corinth. Some people think it might be his eye problem. We believe he had... Difficulty with his eyesight. Uh, some others have said it's malaria. I mean, there's endless lists of suggestions and theories about what this thorn is. It does say thorn in the flesh, which would suggest that there's probably some kind of a physical ailment. But bottom line is, we don't know. We don't know what this thorn specifically is, and I think there is grace in that. Because by leaving this a little open-ended, space is given for all of us to look at this and think, what is my thorn? What is the thorn that God has allowed in my life? And that would be a question I would ask to you now. What? What is your thorn? Or thorns? What is God allowed in your life as a thorn? Maybe it's... Maybe it's an addiction that you can't get over. Maybe it's um, a struggle in your business. Maybe it's that you're insecure about your intelligence. Maybe it's money problems, a lack of money. Maybe it's children who have gone astray from the Lord. Maybe it's not having any children at all. Maybe it's a bad marriage. Maybe it's no marriage that you're single, that you're divorced. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's pain persistent in your life. Maybe it's a series of lost jobs over the years. Maybe it's something about your physical appearance. Maybe it's just an overwhelming sense of inadequacy and always feeling second best. What is the thorn in your life? What has God allowed to prick you and keep you weak, we've all got one. We've all got at least one, and many of us feel like we have many. Uh, I've been telling you that I've been reading this biography of George Washington. And I'm still working through it. It's like 800 pages. It like never ends. But it, it's it's been a, a a good biography. But one thing you know about George Washington is that he is just the picture of strength. I mean, he's this man of courage. He gets on his horse, and he rides into battle, and he dodges bullets, and he has this reputation to be this noble, virtuous, courageous person. People would say that when George Washington would walk into the room, it was almost like some kind of a divine figure stepped in. He was just the picture of strength. And yet, you know, George Washington was always insecure because he never got a college education. George Washington was constantly criticized for his military decisions. A group of people one day got together and tried to remove him from leadership. He was constantly under fire. He had dental problems so bad that by the end of the war, he had one tooth remaining. You can imagine how that might have seemed to him like a series of thorns. Even the strongest among us have thorns, and God knows how to allow them into our lives to keep us weak. And that's what He did with Paul. Paul had a lot of reasons to potentially be puffed up and pride, but God, in His grace, kept him weak. So, the next step, though, as God has allowed weakness, then we see that weakness is accepted because this is the tough thing, right? It is hard to accept our weaknesses. We don't want to accept them. We don't like to even admit them. And that seems to be Paul's reaction here. He doesn't want to accept his weakness and the thorn that God has allowed. So in verse 8 what happens? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. So Paul is pleading, God please take away this thorn. I don't like this weakness. I don't know what Paul was thinking, but I know how many of us think we want to be strong. We want to portray ourselves as competent. We want everybody to look at us and think that's a person who has it all together. That's a person who's smart. That's a person who is uh, funny. That's a person I want to be like. That's the way we want to be perceived, right? We all do. And so when we're aware of our weaknesses, we try to find a way to get out from under it And Paul here goes to the Lord, prays that the thorn would be removed. He prays three times. Now, I don't think we want to read too much into this. This is not suggesting that you can only pray three times for something. And then if God doesn't answer it, you have to stop. That's, That's not what this is saying. We look elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing, it says, Luke chapter 18, the widow who comes to the judge, bangs on the door over and over again. She just nags the guy for justice until he finally gives in and grants her request. So there's plenty in the scripture to encourage us to pray persistently. So if there's the thorn in your life, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you pleading with God that it would be removed, and to pray persistently for that. But in Paul's case... Here in 2 Corinthians 12, he gets to a point where he stops asking. After three requests, he decides it's not worth going on. And the reason why is because it seems that Paul came to the conclusion that what he was praying for was not in line with God's intentions for his life. There are really two solutions to this problem that Paul was facing, the thorn in in his flesh. Two things could happen. One, God could remove it. And that's what Paul was asking for. But there is a second thing that could happen. And that is that God could give Paul the grace to live with it. God could give Paul the grace to endure this thorn. And if you look at verse 9... It seems that's exactly what happened. After Paul pleads three times, he said to me, God says to Paul here, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So now Paul has to shift his prayer. And it's not, O oh Lord, remove this thorn. It's, O oh Lord, let me see how your power can be made clear, made powerful in my weakness. So his whole prayer attitude is shifted. Brian Chappell says it like this. You know, when we pray, we may want a change in our circumstances when God wants a change in us. See, that, that's a prayer that might not be quite in line with what God is intending. We want a quick solution to something, but God wants our growth and patience. We want an end to pressures, but God wants us to learn to trust Him in everything. You See how the prayer can be shifted based on what we perceive God to be doing. Whatever your thorn is, yes, pray, pray that it would be removed. Ask God to take it away. But if it is not answered, perhaps what God is doing is suggesting that you realign your prayers and bring them to God in a different way. Maybe instead of saying, oh Lord, remove this thorn, maybe what you say is, oh God, would you please help me to see how your grace is totally sufficient for me in this situation as much as I don't like it and as much pain as this is bringing? Can you show me how your grace is sufficient for me in my weakness? Perhaps that is what God is calling you to ask him to do. Just as an example of this, I'm going to pull away here. It's not really a personal thing, but... I think an appropriate commentary just on where we are as a church in our culture and in society. You know, the church in the West has had a position of, of prestige and, and power and strength for a lot of years in the United States in particular. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. It seems like now the church is more marginalized. We're, we're kind of more outsiders now. We're regarded as being maybe even a little weird <laughs> At times, what's happening, friends, is this. God is putting the church in a place of weakness. And he wants us to see that perhaps what we need the most is not a return to the glory days, but a way to see God's power made manifest in the midst of our weakness. It could be that the situation we find ourselves in is the church is the best thing that's ever happened to us. Even though it might be hard for us to accept that we don't have quite the same reputation in the culture that we once did. Here's what Mark Sayer says, a study of history shows that it's precisely at moments like this, when the church appears to be sliding into an unalterable decline, when culture is shaken by upheaval, fostering chaos and change, that God moves again. That in other words, God's strength suddenly becomes, becomes uh, visible and becomes a reality that perhaps we haven't seen in a long time. We need to accept this as a church, accept our weakness, embrace our weakness, and look for God's strength to work. So, next thing. Weakness is allowed into Paul's life. You see the progression here in in these points. Then Paul gets to the point where he accepts it. But then he goes on to one more step, which is really phenomenal, amazing. He gets to the place where he can affirm it. Weakness affirmed. Let's look at the rest of this passage, starting in the middle of verse 9. Middle of verse 9. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong." How contrary is this to the world in which we live? (laughs) Who boasts about their weaknesses? Who does that? When you apply for a job, do you tell your boss all the things about yourself that are weak and insufficient and incompetent? When you go on a first date, do you expose all of your weaknesses right away? Talk about how proud you are when you're talking with people? Isn't it always our tendency to name drop and reference the great and mighty and wonderful things that we do, not the things that we're embarrassed about and ashamed of? Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the great philosophers, atheistic philosopher, he hated Christianity, and the reason he hated Christianity is because it's a religion that favors the weak. Only the strong survive, is what the world tells us. It's the way the world lives. And it's absolutely contrary to the attitude that Paul brings to this situation. Paul's attitude is not to be ashamed of his weakness. He boasts about them. I'm going to boast about these weaknesses. I'm going to bring them up. and I'm going to talk about them. That's why he was just so hesitant to share about this revelation because he'd rather proclaim his weakness. The reason why is because Paul knows that to the degree that he decreases, Christ will increase. To the degree that he decreases, loses glory, Christ will gain glory. He realizes that his glory and Christ's glory cannot occupy the same place at the same time. One's gonna displace the other. And if it's gonna be Paul and all of his talents and gifts and abilities and strengths, then Christ's glory will be diminished. But if he boasts in his weakness, then Christ will be exalted and his power will be made manifest in Paul's ministry. And that's what qualifies him to be an apostle. That's Paul's point. Now, let me clarify here that Paul is not suggesting that we ought to pursue hardships or pursue persecutions or or seek out a way for a calamity to come upon us. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that these things are good in themselves. And sometimes Christians get mixed up. They get a martyr complex. And sometimes they seek things out that they don't need to seek. It's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that when God allows it, when the weakness comes in his providence, in whichever way it might arrive in your life, Paul has found a way to be content. Because he wants God's glory to be manifest. That's his number one chief goal. The same goes for you, friends, and the same goes for, for me. With whatever is the thorn in your life, it's, it's painful. It's not to be desired, It's a source of great heartache. That's true, and that should never be minimized. But I think what this passage is saying is that the weaker you are, the more godly, Christ-like power can be released in your life. I mean, that's just hard to understand, isn't it? That's a paradox. The weaker you are, the more God can be glorified in your life. And that's what Paul is saying. As an example of that, there's a woman named Henrietta Mears, um, author, Christian author, educator. Bill Bright, the one who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, now crew. Bill Bright said that she is uh, the greatest woman of the 20th century. Henrietta Mears. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, said, um, no one has a greater capacity for loving people than Henrietta Mears. Highly respected woman, godly woman, influential woman, and a woman who was beset her whole life by a great weakness. And that is she had something that maybe was a little bit like the Apostle Paul. She had an eye problem. She had extreme myopia. And her eyesight was declining declining throughout her whole life. And here's what she says about this. People have asked her, how did you deal with this decline in your eyesight? She said, I believe my greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life has been my failing sight, for it has kept me absolutely dependent upon God. Can you imagine being able to to say that? I believe my greatest spiritual asset is the struggle I've had in my business all my life. I believe my greatest spiritual asset has been my singleness. I believe my greatest spiritual asset has been this debilitating illness. I believe my greatest spiritual asset is this thing about my physical body that I have always hated. Because in every one of the situations, I have had to be dependent on God. I've had to lean on Him. I've had to look to Him to be strong through me. Of course, the greatest example of this And the thing that makes the most sense of this paradox is the cross of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, think of that. God in heaven, the creator of all things, becomes weak. He takes on human flesh, He's born into this world, He walks on this fallen, sad earth for 33 years. He makes himself weak. He makes himself small. He goes to a cross. He dies a humiliating death. Hanging there. Naked. Alone. In pain. Is there any greater expression of weakness than the weakness that Jesus took upon himself when he gave himself up for you and for me? And he did that. Taking on that weakness so that... The day would come when he would be raised up out of the tomb in resurrected glory. Through the weakness comes the strength. And now we who trust in Jesus know that he became weak so that you and I could be strong. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of a Savior who has lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and has risen in a glorious, redeemed body for you and for me. That's the paradox. Strength through weakness. Take your weakness to God. Ask Him to work through it. Don't see your weakness as a liability. In God's economy, it is a strength. And we'll hear more about that as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment. Brand, you can come forward. Let me pray for us as we get ready to come to the table. God in heaven, um, we confess, Father, that we often don't understand such a paradox as this, Lord. But, Lord, we believe it's true that you are a God who keeps us weak so that we might be strong through you. Would you please help us to know this, to embrace it, and to look to you to be strong through us and through us as a church. We pray these things all in Jesus' name.